Hello parents, this is Mike. I just wanted to warn you that there is some disturbing material in this episode and it might be best for young children to avoid this one. Thank you. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 334 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 11, Death in Space. Two minutes after Soyuz 11 landed, members of the recovery crew ran from the helicopters to the descent module, which was laying on its side. They believed that the silence from the crew was simply the result of a radio failure. The recovery team included Air Force doctors to assist the cosmonauts, who would surely be debilitated by their return to gravity after three and a half weeks in weightlessness. As the recovery team approached the descent module, there was no sign of damage on the outside. The recovery team knocked on the side of the module, but there was no response from within. They quickly opened the hatch and were shocked to find the men inert, as if asleep or unconscious. But the fact that their bodies were limp, with dark blue patches on their faces and trails of blood from their noses and ears indicated that they were injured, even though the cause was not apparent. Normally, the recovery team would simply assist the cosmonauts to emerge from the 60-centimeter diameter hatch, but it would be more difficult to extract their inert bodies. The task was complicated by the fact that the module had come to rest with the couches stacked one above each other. A recovery team member reached into the cramped cabin, released the belt on Dabrowski's couch, and pulled him out. Dabrowski was still warm, but his bearded face was lifeless. His mouth was open, and there was a dark patch on his right cheek. His rescuers valiantly tried to revive his heart using chest compression and lung ventilation. Patsayev's couch was up higher. Due to the manner in which the hatch swung into the cabin, it was even more difficult to reach Volkov. As each body was retrieved, the doctors applied manual cardiopulmonary resuscitation. The activity was recorded by a film camera brought to document the joyous return. It would later be determined that when the recovery team pulled the cosmonauts from the module, they had been dead for in excess of 30 minutes. Furthermore, they had spent 11 and a half minutes exposed to vacuum. Humans and experimental animals had sometimes suffered rapid decompression in terrestrial laboratories or on scientific balloons at high altitude. 
But the Soyuz 11 crew were the first humans to suffer the vacuum of space at an altitude in excess of 100 kilometers. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation is only likely to be effective if it is given within six minutes of cessation of the heart, since after this time the brain is permanently damaged. The rescuers stood no chance of reviving the cosmonauts. Based on their reports, the cause of death was suffocation. There were no strange smells in the cabin. The procedure for evacuating the bodies to Moscow for analysis had been accepted. Specialists from Podlipki and the flight center had set off for the landing site. As there are no official reports available from the people directly involved in the effort to resuscitate the crew, the details remain unknown. Colonel Borisenko only briefly reported, quote, We ran to the landing point. The recovery team opened the hatch and pulled out Dabrowski, Volkov, and Patsayev, who had no indications of life. The doctors did everything possible, but it was too late. End quote. One of the doctors and one of very few witnesses to the drama at the landing site was Levon Sevshadzi. He said, quote, For more than an hour, we tried to resuscitate them with the heart-lung machine. The heart reanimation lasted over an hour. We tried using the defibrillation equipment. It was good apparatus. However, there were no signs to show that revival was possible. For example, when I inserted a needle into the heart of one cosmonaut, instead of blood, there was only air. End quote. Meanwhile, back at flight control, the team eagerly awaited recovery leader General Kustasin's next report. But the radio remained silent. The stunned silence in the crowded control room was only broken when someone speculated that the spacecraft could have suffered a decompression that had exposed the crew to the vacuum of space. But that was just a guess. This is how Flight Director Yelizhev recalled the dramatic wait. Five minutes passed, then ten, then fifteen. No news from General Kustasin. How strange. Usually someone remains in the helicopter to report on the radio the events as they happen. One hour has passed. No. Kustasin is still silent. It means that something has happened. Suddenly, using an internal channel, General Kamanin asked me to come to talk to him privately. He was alone in the room used by the State Commission. Kamanin never called someone without a reason. As I ran to him, he looked darkly at me and said, Now they have given me the code, 111, which means that all have perished. Before the mission, it was agreed a code of five meant that their general state was excellent. Four meant good. Three meant that there were injuries. Two meant that there were severe injuries, and one meant that someone had perished. One, one, one meant 
that all three perished. Kamanin told me it was necessary for us to fly to the landing site. End quote. Kamanin, Shadilov, Yelajev, the members of the State Commission, and other senior staff were immediately driven to the airport where an aircraft was waiting for them. When they arrived at the landing site, Yelajev emotionally described the scene. The module was on its side with the hatch open. The guys had already been transported away. One of the doctors reported that it was clear that there had been a decompression and their blood had boiled. The doctors attempted to transfuse blood, but to no effect. When they opened the hatch, the guys were still warm, but gradually hope faded. It is intolerably painful. What an absurdity. A flat field, excellent weather, the module in good condition, and the guys dead. And suddenly something struck me as if an electric shock. Was it the hatch? Might this be my fault? But they had checked the seal. Might it be something they hadn't seen? I will not try to describe what I felt at that moment. Shatilov and I went to the descent module to fill in the form describing its state on landing. The modules were immediately surrounded by the military to prevent anyone approaching it without permission. The first thing I observed was the fountain pen. After my flight, I had presented Patsayev with the pen for good luck. Now it was lying on the sand. Evidently, it fell out of his pocket when they pulled him out. In my head flashed a recollection of how we arrived at my home with Vadim and Victor after the meeting of the Military-Industrial Commission which established their crew. We were happy and sang songs. When saying goodnight, I gave Victor my pen. And here it is, the end of the dreams and the plans. We inspected everything inside and out and wrote our observations. Everything was normal. Then they took from the descent module the tape recorder on which were the parameters measured during the descent. They sealed this in a special container for transport with the escort to Moscow. It would explain the tragedy. We flew in the same aircraft. End quote. General Kamanin provided a less emotional but more detailed account of the visit to the landing site. Although Yelajev wrote of the module that everything was normal, Kamanin noted the unusual position of one of the valves. He wrote, Prior to nightfall, we had time to conduct only a general inspection of the ship, cabin, seats, parachute system, etc. Judging by the results of this inspection, Soyuz 11 performed a soft landing. There was no significant external damage. In the cabin, all the transmitters and all the receivers were switched off. The shoulder straps of Volkov and Patsayev were unfastened, and Dabrowski's belts were tight only at the waist. The shutter of one of the two air valves was inverted to 10 millimeters. There were no other deviations in the cabin. End quote. 
About an hour after the group from Yepatoria arrived at the landing site, they were joined by specialists from OKB-1 and the Cosmonaut Training Center who flew in from Moscow. Included in this group was Alexei Leonov, commander of the original Soyuz 11 crew. In his book, Two Sides of the Moon, he wrote, When the rescue forces reported that the crew was dead, I was instructed to fly to the landing site immediately with Vitaly Sevastinov. We were appointed members of the government committee dealing with the aftermath of the disaster, and our main task was to secure the spacecraft and take photographs of the scene. It took us about three hours to reach the site, by which time the bodies of the crew had already been removed. Their blood-soaked seats and signs that attempts had been made to resuscitate them were the only evidence of the tragedy. End quote. On the morning of July 1st, another group of specialists arrived from Moscow with equipment to test the hermetic seal of the descent module. They closed all openings, including the valve that was set in the unusual position, and increased the internal pressure above ambient by 100 millimeters of mercury. When there was no indication of a leak, they increased the pressure first to 150 and then 200 and waited 30 minutes, but again the pressure remained constant. Having established that the decompression was not the result of a meteoroid puncture of the shell of the module, the module was flown to Moscow later that day for a thorough investigation. The Soviets revealed the tragedy to the world in a message released by the Soviet National News Agency at 6 a.m. on June 30th reading as follows. TASS reports the deaths of the crew of the spaceship Soyuz 11, Commander Dubrovsky, Flight Engineer Volkov, and Research Engineer Pat Saith. On June 29, 1971, the crew of the Salyut Orbital Station fully completed the flight program and was directed to make the landing. The cosmonauts transferred the results of their scientific research and logs to the transport spaceship Soyuz 11 for return to Earth. At 21.28 hours, the Soyuz 11 spaceship separated from the Salyut station and continued its flight separately. In order to make the descent to Earth, at 1.35 a.m. on June 30th, after orienting the Soyuz 11 spaceship, the braking engines fired. This functioned for the required duration. Once the braking maneuver had been concluded, all communication with the crew ceased. In accordance with the automated program after aerodynamic braking in the atmosphere, the parachute system was operated and the soft landing engines were fired before landing. The flight of the descent module ended in a smooth landing in the preset area. A helicopter-borne recovery team landed at the same time as the Soyuz 11 spaceship and upon opening the hatch found the crew of the spaceship in their couches without any signs of life. By their selfless work in the testing of sophisticated space equipment, both the first manned orbital space station and the transport ship Soyuz 11, Dubrovsky, Volkov, and Patsayev 
have made a tremendous contribution to the development of manned orbital flights. The exploits of the courageous cosmonauts will forever remain in the memory of the Soviet people. End quote. On Moscow TV, the reading of this announcement was followed by portraits of the cosmonauts and the continuous playing of solemn music. It was announced that the space heroes were to be given a full state funeral. The Soviet nation was stunned. The deaths of the Soyuz 11 crew shook Moscovites even more than the death of the first man to fly in space, Yuri Gagarin, when he died in 1968. People wept openly in the streets. For over three weeks, the record-breaking flight had been featured on both radio and TV. Dabrowski, Volkov, and Petsev were not seen as just the latest cosmonauts, but as a crew that had accomplished something really new, had broken records, and had unquestionably demonstrated the Soviet lead in the development of orbital stations. Yet, at the final stage, the victory had been transformed not merely into failure, but into an overwhelming tragedy. The post-mortems for the Soyuz 11 crew were conducted in the Berdenko Military Hospital in Moscow by 17 physicians. It was determined that all three cosmonauts had suffered brain hemorrhages, subcutaneous bleeding, damaged eardrums, and bleeding of the middle ear. Nitrogen was absent from the blood. It, together with oxygen and carbon dioxide, had boiled and reached the heart and the brain in the form of bubbles. The formation of gas in the blood was a symptom of rapid depressurization. The blood of all three men contained enormous amounts of lactic acid, fully ten times the norm, which was an indication of a terrible emotional stress and anoxia. On Thursday, July 1st, the bodies of the cosmonauts were delivered to the central house of the Soviet army where they were laid in open coffins on a raised movable box that was used to support the casket. There were somber drapes and multicolored military banners. Garlands and wreaths were arranged around the coffins. All three men were dressed in dark civilian suits and bore on their chest gold stars to signify they were heroes of the Soviet Union. Dabrowski and Patsayev had been awarded the nation's top honor, posthumously, and Volkov, who had already received one after his first space flight in 1969, gained a second star. The only one to display any sign of injury was Patsayev, who had a dark mark similar to a bruise covering most of his right cheek. Dabrowski and Volkov were said by journalists to look uninjured, but for General Kamanin, who was himself in a state of deep shock, only Volkov looked close to his living appearance. He said the faces of Dabrowski and Patsayev were almost unrecognizable. In the eight hours in which the cosmonauts were on display, 
tens of thousands of people filed past to pay their respects. Among them were the first secretary of the Communist Party, Leonid Brezhnev, Premier Alexei Kosygin, President Nikolay Podgorny, members of the Politburo, senior military members, academians, spacecraft designers and cosmonauts, and foreign leaders and ambassadors. The three-man military guard of honor was exchanged every three minutes. For a time, they were joined by members of the cosmonaut corps. At 10 p.m., the Central Army House was closed to the public. At 1 a.m. on July 2nd, the bodies were cremated. At 10 a.m., the urns containing the ashes were returned to the hall, and for two hours, the room was reopened to the public. Shortly before noon, the American astronaut, Colonel Thomas P. Stafford, arrived in Moscow to attend the funeral as President Nixon's representative. He flew there from Belgrade, where, with cosmonaut Pavel Popovich, he had been attending an exhibition entitled Space for Peace. Stafford recalled the moment, saying, Before I reached Belgrade, I heard the news that the Soyuz 11 crew had died on their return to Earth. My first worry was that the stress of a long-duration flight had killed them, and I wondered what it would mean for our Skylab crews. The call from the American embassy in Belgrade to urgently pack his bags and travel to Moscow came as a surprise. When Komarov was killed in 1967, Washington had asked to send astronauts Alan Shepard and Frank Borman to the funeral, but that request had been denied by the Soviets. Upon landing in Moscow, Stafford rode with cosmonaut Beregovoy, his host, to the Central Army House, where he paid his respects. While there, he was introduced to Alexei Leonov. Unaware that Leonov was the original commander for the Soyuz 11 mission, Colonel Popovich had also returned to attend the funeral. He had hastily called the Space for Peace organizer to explain why he must curtail his visit, saying, quote, The guys have died. This weightlessness will kill all of us. End quote. Meanwhile, in the West, as soon as TASS made the announcement that the Soyuz 11 crew had been found dead in their couches, people all around the world began to consider whether their deaths were due to a technical fault or were the results of a fundamental limitation of the human body. One of the prevailing theories was that man might not be able to survive for long periods in weightlessness. For several years, there had been a serious debate among scientists about the effects of long-term exposure to weightlessness. In 1965, one of NASA's Gemini missions had spent 14 days in orbit in order to demonstrate that it was possible to remain in space for the length of time required to fly a lunar landing mission. However, there were indications that the heart grew lazy when exposed to weightlessness. In July 1969, the monkey, Bonnie, 
died of heart failure after the nine-day flight of NASA's biosatellite. After the 18-day flight of Soyuz 9 in 1970, the Soviets had discovered the debilitating effects of weightlessness, the loss of body fluids, the loss of calcium from the bones, and the loss of muscle tone, including the heart. It had taken more than a week for the cosmonauts to readapt to gravity. Perhaps it was suggested the Soyuz 11 mission had lasted six days longer than the previous record and had exceeded man's limits in space. Medical experts admitted that weightlessness could have played a part in the deaths, but they were skeptical that the hearts of three men having different physiologies could have failed simultaneously. In fact, most Western experts in space medicine did not think that the deaths of the cosmonauts resulted from the time they spent in weightlessness. Dr. Charles Berry, the chief physician at NASA's Manned Spacecraft Center, Houston, said, quote, There is no evidence whatsoever from either our experience or that of the Russians in space or from ground-based experiments to suggest that weightlessness could have been responsible, end quote. Barry thought the accident may have been caused by the release of a toxic substance. Dr. Walton Jones, Deputy Director of Life Sciences at the NASA Office of Manned Spaceflight, said that since the three men were found strapped in their couches, they likely died as a result of sudden decompression, such as would have occurred if a valve had leaked or if the cabin shell had ruptured or was struck and punctured by a meteoroid. Within hours of the news of the loss of the crew, Kenneth Gatlin of the British Interplanetary Society dismissed the effects of returning to Earth after such a long flight as the cause of death. He believed there must have been a mechanical failure, but he admitted it was possible that after 24 days in space, the cosmonauts were so tired that they had failed to verify all of the spacecraft systems, or when an emergency had developed, they had been unable to react sufficiently rapidly. NASA was relieved when the official report ruled out weightlessness and physical deconditioning as a cause for the accident. The American space specialist felt sure that the Soyuz must have suffered a mechanical or structural failure. Because the crew were not in protective pressure suits, they could have died from any number of causes, such as excessive heat, carbon dioxide fumes from a small fire, a nitrogen leak from the spacecraft's air system supply, or a rapid drop in cabin pressure. Such theories were supported by unconfirmed reports that all radio transmissions, telemetry as well as voice, had ceased at the conclusion of the braking maneuver. In fact, most speculation centered on a failure in the oxygen supply. This was based largely on the rumor in Moscow that the cosmonauts had been found with serene expressions on their faces. Such composure is characteristic of hypoxia, a starvation of oxygen 
that can produce a rapid and relatively painless death. On learning of the difficulty in closing the hatch prior to undocking from the salute, Western analysts theorized that if the hatch was insecure, the mechanical stress of re-entry could have made a minor leak into a disastrous one. But in September of 1971, cosmonaut Dr. Boris Yegorov said that the disaster struck when the air leaked from the cabin during a period of several seconds as the orbital module was released. He insisted that the hatch was properly sealed and said that suspicion had fallen on one of the valves used to equalize the pressures across the hatch. The Soviet authorities had deemed the postmortems sufficient to determine the cause of death and had proceeded with the state funeral, but were waiting until they fully understood what had gone wrong before concluding the technical investigation. Very soon after the accident, a special 12-member state commission was formed to determine the specific cause of the Soyuz 11 accident. The chairman was Academia Mstislav Keldish, and his deputy was Jorge Babkin, who was the chief designer of the Lavochkin Design Bureau, which developed lunar and interplanetary probes. The membership included Sergei Afanashev, head of the Ministry of General Machine Building, and general designer Valentin Glushko. Although Glushko developed the engines for Korolev's rockets in the 1950s, his relationship with chief designer mission was strained. The commission set up 10 subcommittees to investigate every aspect of a Soyuz flight, including launch, orbital operations, mission control, working with the Salyut station, undocking, the braking maneuver, re-entry and landing, and then to recommend ways in which to improve the design and operation of the spacecraft. Six of the subcommittees were led by the Air Force representatives who included cosmonauts Shatilov, Nikolaev, and Beregovoy. The State Commission held its first meeting on July 3rd, the day after the funeral, at which time it planned the investigation and specified the subcommittees. It had two weeks in which to undertake its investigation and submit its report. For its first operative meeting on July 7th, Keldish invited the attendance of the most important OKB-1 people involved in the Salyut program. Mission, Bushayev, Chertok, Tregrub, Shabarov, Semyonov, and Fyoktistok. The first person to present evidence to the committee was Chief Designer Vasily Mission who described how the Soyuz 11 spacecraft differed from its predecessors. He pointed out that a total of 19 spacecraft had been launched since November 1966, with Soyuz 10 and Soyuz 11 being the 7K-T crew-faring variety. The main difference between the two recent ships was the modification to the docking system following its failure on the Soyuz 10 mission. According to mission, Soyuz 11 suffered no major problems until the separation of its modules. Based on data recorded by the onboard memory device, 
the module separation occurred at an altitude of at least 150 kilometers, and it lasted just 0.06 seconds. The pressure in the descent module began to fall rapidly at that moment. At 1.47 a.m., two seconds prior to jettisoning the orbital module, the pressure in the descent module was 915 millimeters of mercury, which was normal. But some 115 seconds later, the pressure had dropped to 50 millimeters and was still falling. In effect, there was no longer any air in the cabin. This decompression could result from two causes. First, the premature opening of one of the two valves located at the top of the descent module, or leakage from the hatch. Mission presented diagrams featuring curves corresponding to these two modes of decompression. The curve calculated for a loss of pressure due to the valve opening exactly matched the actual loss of pressure recorded by the black box. In addition, the force resulting from the air venting from this valve upset the stabilization of the module, which prompted the automated control system to fire six 10-kilogram thrusters to compensate. The thruster firings calculated on the assumption that the air was being vented matched those recorded by the black box. The maximum deceleration load of 3.3 G was recorded when the descent module reached an altitude of 40 kilometers where the atmosphere began to thicken. At this point, air began to enter through the inadvertently opened valve. The second valve was automatically opened as planned at an altitude of about 5 kilometers. Although the cabin rapidly filled with fresh air, it was too late for the cosmonauts. The conclusion was inescapable. One of the two valves had opened prematurely as the orbital module jettisoned. The possibility of an incorrect command could be discarded because both valves were on the same circuit. Based on the 2 centimeter size of the valve's tube, the internal volume of the descent module, and the fact that the air would have passed through the valve at the speed of sound, the time for pressure to diminish to near zero was calculated at 50 to 60 seconds. If Dabrowski, Volkov, and Patsayev had been wearing pressure suits, they would not have been in danger. But the Soyuz was a shirt-sleeve environment, and so they became the first men to die in space. from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 334 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Soyuz 11, Death in Space. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode will be released in two weeks on March 26th. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 164 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most pod catchers. Okay, I have an announcement. Last episode, I told you we were now on Spotify, and now I am happy to report we are now available on iHeartRadio. Just search for Space Rocket History Podcast, and you should find me there. I'm still trying to get uh, on Pandora. I'm not sure what the problem is, but they are not allowing me on there yet. I also wanted to give a big thank you to a very special listener, Colin. Colin has a friend who is the neighbor of Gene Krantz. His friend's name is Rod. Colin bought me a new copy of Gene Krantz's book, Failure is Not an Option, and Rod, Gene's neighbor, got Gene to autograph it. And if I may, I would like to read you the inscription he wrote, and this is it. To Mike... This is our story of challenge, triumph, and tragedy during our lunar journeys. Mission accomplished July 20th, 1969. And it's signed by Eugene F. Krantz, and in quotations, his call sign, Flight. Now this is one of the most thoughtful gifts I have ever received. And I just wanted to recognize Colin and Rod and tell them how much I appreciate this from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I certainly do appreciate this. Okay, had a few afterthoughts on this episode. I guess this episode reminds us of the danger of space exploration. Now, it is a near vacuum up there, and of course, there is no air. It is lethal to the human body. That's why there is such great caution now when we try to human rate a spacecraft, and that requires a lot of effort. But I do fear these types of episodes will discourage some young people from choosing a career in space, and I really don't want that to happen. I'm talking to you now, youth. Keep in mind, this accident happened nearly 50 years ago, and now... Everyone wears a pressure suit when going to orbit and returning to the Earth. Of course, that's not a guarantee. Bad things can still happen. But life in general can be hazardous to your health. So I have just a little bit of advice, and that is to live your life to its fullest and do not be discouraged about this accident. Okay. In the episode, I mentioned Alexei Leonov going to the Soyuz 11 landing site, and I read an excerpt from his book, Two Sides of the Moon. I began to wonder if Alexei had changed his opinion about missing the Soyuz 11 flight, and was he now thankful that he was not on that flight? Well, the answer is no. Leonov believed that if his crew had flown, the accident could have been avoided. Here is an excerpt from his book explaining that belief. Quote, As Soyuz 11 prepared for re-entry to Earth's atmosphere, 
I was following the events closely in the bunker of a new mission control center in Kaliningrad, near Moscow. It was customary for the commander of the backup crew to monitor events at this time, together with the head of the mission and the chief constructor, and to maintain radio contact with the crew and to pass on any advice and necessary instructions. So, I was there monitoring the control of all onboard systems in a logbook. As the crew went through the control of positioning the air vents located between the landing and orbital modules, I advised them to close the vents and not to forget to reopen them once the parachute had deployed. Make a note of it in your logbook, I instructed them. Although this deviated from the flight regulations, I had trained for a long time for this mission they were flying, and in my opinion, this was the safest procedure. According to the flight program, the vents were supposed to close and then open automatically once the parachute had deployed after re-entry, but I believed there was a danger. If this automatic procedure was followed, that the vents might open prematurely at too high an altitude and the spacecraft could depressurize. It seems the crew did not follow my advice. Unfortunately, my intuition proved right. The pressure equalization vents did open prematurely before the capsule re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and the capsule depressurized. The loss of the Soyuz 11 cosmonauts was a terrible blow to the morale of the whole Corps. Everyone understood that we were in the business of testing spacecraft, and the deaths of these three men undoubtedly saved the lives of subsequent crews because of the substantial modifications made. But their loss was a tragedy. Not only was I deeply saddened by what had happened, but I was frustrated too. Had I been allowed to fly in their place, I am sure my crew would have survived. End quote. Tell us what you really think, Alexi. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe his crew would have survived. But if they did, the Soviets would still be sending up crews without pressure suits until another accident happened which I don't know how long that would be. Another thing I wanted to mention is the speculation on the cause of the death of the cosmonauts. It seems silly now, but in 1971 there were still questions about humans' capability to adapt to weightlessness, especially returning back to Earth. There was some concern even at NASA about this, as evidenced by General Stafford's worry about this affecting Skylab. Fortunately, there were still learning staff like Dr. Charles Berry who knew this could not have been the problem that killed the cosmonauts. Sadly, Dr. Berry just passed away last week. In case you don't remember him, he was a NASA flight surgeon who helped select the country's first astronauts and devised tests to see if they could survive the demands of space. Barry is considered a pioneer in aerospace medicine with a 68-year career in which he served 
as a flight surgeon for the U.S. Air Force, Director of Life Sciences for NASA, an aviation medical examiner for the Federal Aviation Administration, and an aerospace medicine consultant. Barry died in his sleep in his Houston home, and he was 96 years old. Of course, being a flight surgeon, he was not so popular with the astronauts. But he did make many contributions over his long 68-year career. Rest in peace, Dr. Barry. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting it. For the past seven years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Over the past fortnight, we had six new contributions and increases. I would like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who sent in another donation and moved to the shuttle level. David D. from Maine donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. John E. from California sent in another donation and moved to the Mercury level. Peter Y. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level. Megan T. pledged on Patreon and moved to the Soyuz level. And Andreas W. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Our total Patreon donors have reached 247. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 301, with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, friends. It's time to draw our winner for this episode. Our winner will get a choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two of our new holographic stickers. With the help of Google's random number generator I selected, Joseph Swader. Joseph Swader, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, to tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll mail this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 301 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were Rockets and People by Boris Chertok, Salyut, the First Space Station by G. Ivanovich, Soviet Space Program website, Russia Space Web, Astronics website, NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive, Space Facts website, Two Sides of the Moon by Alexei Leonov, and Wikipedia. And that will do it for episode number 334. I'll try to have episode 335 posted by Thursday, March 26th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.